Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. You, you notice that Yee. whoever starts off now actually gets to set Yee? the phrasing for how we introduce ourselves? Well, because we are mindless puppets who follow along very easily. Puppets? Puppet. That's even less significant than puppet. <laughs> <laughs> the puppet master is the puppet master of the puppet, and the puppet master gets to be the puppet... I don't know. I have I've a, lost track yeah, of Yeah, I know. I don't... Like, it was sort of funny, and then I... Wasn't following. <laughs> so, Susie sells seashells. I'm okay with that. By the seashore. <laughs> I question Susie's business model. That's what I do. <laughs> oh, or is it Sally? Sally? I didn't even get Sal- Susie right. It's Sally. It is, Sally. It's no, Sally. Susie. Uh, it's late. Susie? No, it's, uh, Sally passed away. Horrible accident. But her, her daughter Susie what took it over. What are we doing? We're, We're well, doing. Today's episode is awaken, about tongue twisters. Awaken My Love by Childish Gambino. Good point. And uh, this is a listener pick. It was suggested to us by last week's guest, the one and only Mike Rugnetta. Cheap? Is that the word for it? Well, I don't know. If you think it's cheap to build two album requests out of last week's guest, I wouldn't disagree, honestly. Because the fact is, off air, a lot of album suggestions were being thrown around, as you would expect. And in the course of it, Mike had brought up Childish Gambino's new album, having been highly recommended by others. But he recommended it casually, and I thought, well, want to make it formal? Please fill out this form, and in inquiry, we will be sent through channels. The channels are us. The channels are us, and it can be done on the spot. We just put it right through. But actually, the real reason is that there was an added benefit. It solved a little scheduling issue on our part. By including a new listener pick, we get to fulfill a little unintended tradition of ours, one where, at the start of the new year, we rotate who starts off the year just as we rotate weekly. So I believe this year it's Matt's turn, and because of today's listener pick, it adjusts us so that we'll be right back on track. See? <laughs> Mike Rugnetta, the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, that's true. And speaking of Mike Rugnetta, I do want to thank him for being on the show. Um, we had a blast recording. He texted me several times saying that he had a blast being on and thanked us as well. I mean, all of our guests uh, are a pleasure to have on, but it's always nice when someone steps into the podcast like they've been here forever. Like, I could easily see us doing it with Mike every week, pretty easily, just because he fit our very specific dynamic almost effortlessly. If you watch his videos, it's not a, it's not a stretch to imagine. Yeah, right. And so, um, so thanks again for joining on the show, Mike, if you're listening, and if not, I'm still thanking you anyway. All right. Well, then we will get into Mike's album, Childish Gambino. Uh, well, first of all, Childish Gambino is Donald Glover, and today Donald Glover is Childish Gambino. Gambino. Uh, perhaps another instance of Renaissance Man, since the late and yet fairly recent Leonard Cohen episode that yeah. we did. So, uh, yeah, Donald Glover is obviously a musician, but he's also a comedian, a writer, an actor, and for many who are quite likely to have come across something he's done, maybe describing his background seems a little redundant, but let's be thorough. He was voted the most likely to write for The Simpsons when he graduated high school. He was once in a sketch comedy troupe called Derek Comedy and was recognized for his work there. And he has since written for 30 Rock. He's acted in Community. He played the lovably disorganized nerd hero in The Martian. And get this, he's going to be Lando f***ing Calrissian in the upcoming Han Solo film. Nice. Yeah, the young Han Solo movie. Um, I, I happen to be a huge fan of his work 
in acting, you know, I've and you've seen his comedy specials. I um, I've listened to his rap albums. They're not my favorite rap records, but I like. I've always acknowledged that he has skill, and I enjoy what he does on the whole. Um, but I was a huge fan of his in Community. That's when I really got to know him as an actor. He was very funny in that show. Um, paired with Danny Pudi, who played his best friend Abed um, mm-hmm. in the show. He played Troy, and it was just they got into some bizarre nonsense on that show, breaking the fourth, fourth wall very often. Um, they had a gag where they would do like a morning show where they would sit in the community college on two stools with coffee cups, doing a like morning talk show bit. Yeah, and then like someone and they'd be talking. To to the camera, and then someone would walk into the room and go, who are you guys talking to? Which is always fun. <laughs> yeah, no, he has an interesting mind. I actually watched one of his stand-up specials just prior to, to doing this episode, because I figured I should get to know him more. I, I didn't watch Community, but I, I guess the first time I really noticed him was in The Martian, which mm-hmm. is, so it's fairly recent for yeah. me. But the fascinating thing is that none of these things are really <laughs> side gigs for him. He seems to be actively pursuing all of them at once, which mm-hmm. is why I was bold enough to call him a Renaissance man. And it's also really inspiring yeah. for someone that doesn't view any of these things as being kind of secondary. Like, sure, some things may wax and wane as some things become more demanding in his life, yeah. but otherwise he's equally into all of them, and he's probably going to be doing that for the rest of his life. Yeah, he actually has a new show called Atlanta that I saw the the, the pilot of on a flight to Arizona, and um, it was really interesting because there were still funny moments, but it was a dark comedy. It's about him trying to produce his cousin's brand-new rap, rap record, and, like, there's some interesting racial dynamics and comedy dynamics and and music dynamics Mm -hmm. in it that were really fascinating and I want to watch the rest of the show I highly recommend it Um, but yeah he's someone who also in a lot of his music and his comedy you can get a sense of his personality from too yeah and today of course we're going to be focusing more in on his music but uh, yeah his personality I think is intertwined I think I'm like completely unprepared for this individual because I don't watch any of these funny shows I don't I don't don't do any funny things anymore where you been John where you been i I've been watching a lot of just drama. That's what I do nowadays. Okay. Serious, serious, serious. I gotta get into so I gotta get back into sitcoms. I guess. Yeah, I okay. think so too. Well, anyway, let's get into Childish Gambino, a stage name that interestingly he attained by using the Wu Tang Clan name generator, which is <laughs> That's absurd. Absolutely, really probably great. the most ridiculous and maybe even lame origin story ever. But yeah, let's let's look at his third signed album, Awaken My Love. Of course, his signed stuff uh, follows a series of mixtapes and self-released material, and of course, the more rap and hip-hop oriented stuff that he did previously. So this mm-hmm. is kind of a turn because it is quite a bit more funk and even Motown inspired, mm-hmm. but with a lot of modern twists. So everybody ready to start off with track one, Me and Your Mama? Yeah, sure, let's do it. I don't know if it's supposed to have the attitude, but there is attitude in this album for sure. Let's start off with something that has no attitude whatsoever, Lullaby Synth Chimes. <laughs> it's not, really just, delicate, it's not just synth chimes, it's a music box level you know, of said chimes. I think it may actually be a glockenspiel, because it occurs later, uh, I think we found out that it has a, there's a glockenspiel later on the album, mm-hmm. and looking back on it, that may be this, but it's pretty well worked. I mean, it sounds kind of like someone is just winding and restarting a music box, mm-hmm. it's true. We sort of twinkle, and then we stop, and we twinkle, and we stop. Very sparkling, very delicate. Uh, didn't expect 
based on that, I did not expect the bass drop that we hear at 22 seconds in because it's almost a profound bass drop. I mean, I think it's because the twinkling chimes leave us off on the suspended C major 7 chord, and then this low-lying bass just enters in and resonates with a sudden D while the C major 7 is being held. And now it starts to get arpeggiated by this staccato choir. But considering that nothing else has changed except for that added D in the bass, at least not to my ears, what you really have is a C major 7 over 9. Not 100% sure if that's it, but it's it's otherwise beautiful voicing, and I think mm-hmm. it was pretty alluring to start us off. Yeah, I thought that the instrumentation of the intro was was beautiful, but what really kind of hooked me after that bass drop was the the soulful chorus singers that came in. I kind of the, uh, got wrapped up in it. The combination of the breathiness of it as well as the punch, because they were mm-hmm. really reaching for it. They were really trying to, to hit you with force, but it was a very soft force. It was, it, was a, it was a pillow hitting your face, but it was a really big deep pillow. It's just that warm bass effect. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's the that's what it accomplishes. But the this t- time signature I think is also sort of responsible for it being smooth and not really, you know, not not grabbing you by the ears, I think, at this point. It's it's in a sort of smooth 6-4, slow and dreamy. The beat sort of falls in this like one and four, five, six, one, and four, five, six. It's that for most of the intro of this piece. And in that case, the, the choir sort of, when, when it finally enters, it sort of sings these little staccato notes on the beat itself. And those opening lyrics here are, I'm in love when we are smoking. <laughs> so, all right, that's fair enough. And then he just enters, la, 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 la. And that's uh, pretty much your smooth intro. Yeah. Very, very soul. But you do get that late kind of scatty skip mix that, that steps in to start preparing you for the more unusual things that you're going to get on this album. Because it's not just, you know, gospel-ish, soulful-ish kind of dreamland. Because we drop into funk. We drop heavily into an attitude-driven, really whiny, almost hurt vocals Mm -hmm. that is a direct contrast to that nice effervescence that we got in the opening choir work. Yeah, the the intro lasts about two minutes or so before we kind of take that hard shift into straight up funk. And it's nice because it allows us to kind of get swept up in it a little bit. But what's interesting to me is when the shift happens and he starts to sing Childish Gambino, he's delivering his le- lyrics for me in like a Lenny Kravitz kind of way. It's yeah. that forceful kind of breaking that you were talking the about. The hurt vocals. Because that's how Lenny Kravitz often sang, especially in his older stuff, was this kind of passion, so passionate the vocals break and it sounds like you're in pain. And, and I like that. It's a, it's a cool style to play on. You know, I associate that with a lot of rock and blues, so... Well, the one line, let me into your heart from the hook, and the way it's just like gasping mm-hmm. for air as it rings out, is really is playing up that that um, that need, that, yeah. that desire for some sort of like balm on, on some sort of pain yeah. that's going on right here. But I'm not really 100% seeing that translating in the music itself the the sectional work as we go start going through verses and the hooks and the the different just play that's going on right here in this post intro area is not really changing too much for me it's staying very steady it's it's funk it's fun but 
there's not a whole lot going for besides just the fun of the sound. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree about the middle section of this track, but of course it does dial it back down at the end, but I can see how it'd be abrasive to some people. Like, I was pretty shocked, actually, at that sort of two-minute mark when mm-hmm. we get the, the funk section for the very first time, but I would describe it sort of as a certain brand of funk, scary funk, let's call it that for the sake of for the sake of argument. It's If it's a hook at this point, it's kind of a sudden hook because it's this per- pervasive buzzing synth, almost like a guitar, but way too direct and, and boxy. And also, for the first few measures, it shifts to 4-4, I noticed, and then at 2-17, it, it, it swings back to 6-4, just as those vocals start. But it's it's uh, it was shocking enough that I think it managed to set a precedent that was bold enough that I could at least stay here for the remainder of the track. I wasn't mm-hmm. too judgmental on it. If they wanted to stay here for a while, fine. But I will agree that once you're back to the verse, there's not too much uh, difference between as it goes back and forth between verse and and hook yeah. from this point to the end of the track. Like, using that boxy thing, it, almost without realizing it, yeah, you're, you're into the verse from the hook the very first time you get it, but everything is at level nine, yeah. you know? I could see this maybe turning away some people because the vocals are a little bit screechy. If it's not your, your brand of funk or if you kind of more like the smoother side of funk more in the Motown vein, this album does offer you that as well. You just have to be a little bit patient because he sort of dials back and forth between like nine and two. <laughs> yeah, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. In this track... On the overall that you are both saying, I I tend to agree, but I think it was most noticeable for me in the outro, because the outro felt more self-indulgent than the rest of the track. But speaking about the, the, the verse and hook, I'm kind of leaning more towards Steve. I don't think until that outro that we'll get to in a minute that I didn't feel the length. Um, I was kind of enjoying it because it was still new. This was the first track, so I didn't really have much of an issue with it. It was the vocal projection that kept me engaged. It was the fact that I he mean, was yeah, being so forceful about mm-hmm. his character, about what he's singing, regardless of what he was actually saying. I didn't, right. I didn't truly care. I want to be honest. I wasn't really invested in the lyrics on this track. Well, yeah, it was more about how the singing sounded than I the actual I got the emotional lyrics. field out of that, and yeah. that was good enough that was that yeah. was enough to keep me engaged. Though there was a slight mood shift as we go along, especially when it breaks into that that kind of piano guitar section, and most of the synthesized elements kind of just drop off. That was a nice little turn of phrase, I guess, right, yeah, for the, the end, music yeah. itself. And that was starting around that four was, minutes, ten seconds. Yeah, that was right before the outro really hit full force. It was sort of like the pre-outro, I don't know, it's a little bit hard to describe because up until that point not much had changed, Yeah. but when it did give us a breather, when it did go acoustic, it was it was uplifting, surprisingly uplifting for that hurt voice, for that pain I was kind of feeling all along. Yeah, they reeled me back in the end, I think, especially mm. consi- like that's the nine and, you know, two, nine, two. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, it's got kind of like an overall ABA structure in your, your experience of this track, mm-hmm. but it's the, the passionate romance track. Yeah, and sure. It, it's kind of an introduction to a relationship that feels like it will be blossoming as we go along with it, or at least yeah. the reflection of that relationship, and this is sort of going right back to, to the core of it, you know? It's yeah. just really, some generalizations let me into your heart, although I also kind of like how it's just let me into your and 
And it almost feels like he's just stopping at let me into you. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, considering some of his vocal styles, especially in that middle meat section of this track here, are so sexualized because yeah. they're full of, you know, exclamations and just, yeah. you know, belts out, yeah, and I'm going to get you, girl, and all yeah. that stuff. You know, you could easily see where he's coming from. And I think if you're in that mood, then sure, the middle track, the middle part of this track is going to grab you. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think I, 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 I by no means had any problem with the outro. I just think it was like it was the most self-indulgent part of the track but then again he's trying to kind of convey especially for the first time at least on this record and in his career to my knowledge this kind of funk and passion in a different way than the passion of his hip-hop he's kind of gonna throw some interesting things at you even if they don't vary up too much in the first track because we do get variation as we go on. Something else about the uh, outro that I really liked is the they bring in the clarinet there mm -hmm. for that that sort of offbeat thing that it's kind of a solo for the remainder of the piece, but it's all very even, but it's it's offbeat even in a very specific way. I kind of like, I remember when I said the track was in six before. Mm -hmm. Well, this is sort of doing eight for six, eight notes for six, which is, of course can be re reduced to a ratio of four to three. But it's, it's, on that scale, it's actually pretty interesting. You can kind of just lose yourself in it. So sure. self-indulgent is maybe, it's, it's, it's early for me yet to start using that word. Okay. He took us on a little bit of a journey for the first track, and I was, I was glad to see it. All right, on to track two. Have some love. Now, one of my favorite parts of the Motown experience shows up right here, right from the beginning. Yep. Jackson 5 harmonies. And specifically, I want to say Jackson 5 because it is the distinct voices not quite meshing up with mm -hmm. one another. Enough so that you could hear when each individual person is singing, but they work well in tandem with one another. I love that. That was one yeah. of my favorite parts of early Michael Jackson career. And what's interesting is that once it gets into the just Childish Gambino singing, it tends to lean more towards, I mean, to speak to a more recent artist that we reviewed, The Heavy, and their album, The Hurt and Merciless, it had that kind of feel. Of course, they were just emulating mostly 70s and 80s funk, period. So, yeah. like making that allusion just to reference it to something this year to reference something that's actually come before. Yeah. Which that's, is that's is, why I cut out the middleman and said Jackson right, Five Motown. Exactly. You're right. referencing within our canon and right, exactly. for the sake of our listeners. It's important. The timeline, the canon, it's all important. All important. Anyway. But right, yeah. but I but I do really enjoy that this track kind of kicks it up a notch and really kind of brings you in. You know, it took what the first track was setting up and kind of continued to move it along. And it still felt decidedly different from the previous track. The previous track maybe alluded to this, but I don't know that it actually specifically indulged in this. Well, the thing is, the first track was far too sort of wispy, yeah. and, you know, it had its own little universes that it was creating in individual spots. For this sure. track is, it's its a track. There, it's, it's, <laughs> it's got form here, and it kind of sets you up with the those funk riffs mm -hmm. right off the bat that you really want to see. This, interestingly, kind of a, it, it does pick it up, but it is rather a slow 16th note backdrop. At least I heard the yeah. mid 16th notes. It was just the drums in the beginning, just these sort of very rich and solitary drums unaccompanied by anything else this kind of like one a, a two e, a, a three e, and a, right at that pace so overall the pulse is pretty slow but it's consistently with the, you know the beat itself there's always the accent is always on the one and the two even though you always have the the e and a right along with it but the points of interest really come in with the texture of those drums because the kick if you notice within that one e, a, a two e and a, the kick there might be stuttering a little bit mm -hmm. it alone by itself may just be doing something like one e a two e and 
to en, right? But then everything else fills in the gaps. Yeah. And there's a lot of little trade-offs there. Like the symbol also is actually the pickup for the next measure. You feel that on the en of for en. So it's en, and then it introduces you to the one again. Mm -hmm. So little things like that are what I really like about funk. And I think that's more what I wanted to see out of this album. And it, little expansions on those ideas. I like the alternative side of things, don't get me wrong. But that's, that's where you can get kind of focused on yeah. the layering of the music. I mean, but going back to what John said in the beginning too, I did really like the harmony work here. It had a kind of power that I felt like the chorus in the previous track, not the chorus of people, did the it quiet. had a different kind of impact. Like for for example, John was saying it was kind of like being hit with a large pillow, whereas this I feel there was more passion and in, in the voice itself. It was more impactful to me. It's it uh, it actually did the opposite for me. It went less grand. It went closer to home. It went. Well, that might be more it why went, it was more impactful because it felt more focused. It won't uh, more real, I guess. I want to use because it felt like it was people standing in front of me instead of some was, angelic beings uh, off right, in the okay, distance I see what you're saying. trying to reach me. They were reaching me from the get go. Have a word for your brother. Have some time for one another. Really love one another. It's so hard to find. Have a word for your brother. Have some time for one another. Really love one another. It's so hard to find. Yeah. It. This is this is actually reaching out. This yeah. is really uh, extending an olive branch of here. I want you to be a better person. Yeah. And now I'm going to explain it to you. Let's That's be better. Like but it's more like let's be better together. Yeah. Not to sound like a curmudgeon, but I, I have to say that after the other stuff, I was less crazy about the verses, at least as they progressed. Yeah. They didn't really do very much for me. They they kind of wowed me with various transitions in the piece, but then each and every time they swung back to the verse, it was kind of a giant deflation for me. Yeah. I can only explain this if I set up the, uh, the the layering that I was starting to get at before. For instance, uh, when the first verse began, right, you relative to where it started with just those drums earlier on, it was like an organ drone and a bass line. And those right. are the only two pieces, right? Just slowly packing it on that you were adding to the to the drums, which were still, you know, going along, but now the bass was kind of the, the, the point of interest because of its circular nature. Like, it wasn't a walking bass. It was almost like a moonwalking bass. <laughs> it kept going around and around. I was really fascinated by it. And then, of course, you only have that single organ drone, which just establishes this thin chord progression, but it's still just a, a drone in the end. Very, very sparse. It's almost secondary. Now, the vocals here... They were they didn't uh, they were unique the first time I heard them and I'm gonna give it that because he sings in this sort of strained style that I couldn't really make sense of like each syllable was sort of an inhale and an exhale like you got the power you got the power but it doesn't sing like that it's like it's screechy I I would embarrass myself to try to even mimic it it's just strange it's like the uh, here, here's a weird one Tenacious D's inward singing oh yes <laughs> do you remember yes, yes. that yeah, yeah, yeah it's kind of like that but of course progressively going back and forth back and forth because right. that was the whole joke behind the inward singing is that you'll never have to breathe between a phrase <laughs> and that was Jack Black's amazing idea yeah. it's basically like that you got the power you got the power of every hour of every hour I come to get you I know where you are I come to get you and I know where you are it's getting hot it's like a sauna then every night in Arizona they come to get you when they grope in your mind they think you creepy getting down in your mind uh, they come and get you they come and get you it doesn't matter you're making magic so 
I, I know lyrical they're, content. They're, they're, they're okay. Yeah. But let, let me get to the, the meat of this track, which really is the transition. Because it's after the second hook, right? The second, have a word for your brother, have some time for one another. Uh-huh. Um, we get kind of a part B. And in this case, there are some similarities to the earlier portion. The beat hasn't really changed. It's the same pace. It's still 4-4. But apart from the tendency for me to want to count this twice as fast, we're more grounded in minor now and no longer major. Also, a lot more instrumentation has been added here. Mm -hmm. You get these spacey synths, things whizzing by, the choir doing this, like, uh, you know, (laughs) do-do-do, that (laughs) that soul gospel thing, and then also these random noises. But lastly, my favorite part is the bass here is even more dynamic than it was before. It's really running the show, and it's a much more complicated lick. It's more rhythmic, and it's also more of a foundation now because the synth is so much fuller in this instance. But sometimes the bass will also not even go more rhythmic. Sometimes it'll just, like, ring out on one chord, and that's where it gets to be that foundation. So, roles are changing. That's what I more wanted to see, and that's why the second we got to the bridge and then the hook right after that, I was like, oh, come on. Well, because the music seems to really take a step back after that transitional piece and becomes... A little bit of a jam session, kind of on the noisier side. Everybody seems to be trying to do something to add to the whole, but I don't feel like the parts are really quite meshing. It sounds extremely interesting, but since everything levels back so that the vocals can stand out, nobody is taking center stage instrumentally. And without that center stage, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm losing myself in the cacophony that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I would say that while it adds kind of a playfulness to the track as a whole, I think the instrumentation does not really hold up the song as well as the vocals do. The lyrics also, like, you've both read them throughout talking about this track, and they don't, like, the chorus stands out more, or the hook, as it were, because at least there's a, there's a, a passion to it that I can kind of rally behind, whereas the verse that Steve read, it was just kind of matter-of-fact and... I don't know, I just didn't get the same passion from it that I did the chorus. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'm really even that gung-ho on the chorus, the hook that is now, the more I think about it. I think I really just like the transition. Like, this track, I, I accept that it was more fully formed, and I think I... Liked that about it. For once, I guess I wasn't that down on the the pop uh, the pop structure of yeah. it. But it, it seems almost the exact reverse. Like my favorite thing about this was that strange instrumental, yeah. where where the lyrics really are are very secondary because it's just they're they're random. They're they're kind they're, of ethereal. Yeah, just kind of darling. No, in no, space. no, no, no. That's right. Maybe that's right. I see wherever wherever you are. All that sort of stuff. They they had a little bit of a jam at the very tail end. Yeah. They sort of pulled out like a bottleneck guitar. It almost felt like like a campfire jam for the final little round at yeah. the very, very end of the track. So, eh, I don't know. But it didn't get anywhere near to the heights that the instrumental sort of did in that yeah. instrumental, that's what we're calling it. it, it made, which I want to kind of call the bridge, but it's not. <laughs> it, it made the last hook, though, feel more close to the mic than the others had and kind of kumbaya-ish, like you were saying, but, like but at a that campfire. Point, at yeah. that point, it was another just brief interlude of something interesting because we kept getting brief bass awesomeness and brief beats of funness and briefness throughout this track where just every once in a while something would rear his head and do like hey this is cool and then would immediately retreat back into the soundscape that we've already gotten so i'm i feel like it you're closer to the content yeah it's it seems like there's just like a lot of non-committal ideas all right all right so we have some opposite opinions in that one good good contradiction love it track three boogeyman to be I, said, it's Boogeyman 
boogieing as in dancing, yes. not boogeyman like the horror character. Actually, I'm going to refute closet. that right away because of the vocal styles that are no, going on. No, but I'm on saying right that it's legitimately spelled differently than boogeyman the chi- hides in your closet. That's yes, spelled B O G E Y. This is spelled B O O G I E, which is mean to boogie to dance. But the vocals are just if we had a sharp intake of breath singing previously, this is this is like he's gasping for air yet still trying to sing at us. Not to us, straight up at us. Uh, it's more like if it's you point like he's just like reaching inward trying to bring our ears into his mouth. It's the vocalizer effect. That's what it's yeah. really doing here. But let me let me just uh, proceed this by again with some comments on the funk instrumentation first because it began with a pretty in- interesting uh instrumental hook. Very old school funk at this point. Uh the vocals are kind of doubling the synth for this particular line which I'm going to try to actually sing while I'm while I'm uh outlining the rhythms here. This one and two uh and a three e and a four e one and two uh and a three e and a four it's groovy but the drums here are also spectacular because here's something that i really love about drums in funk is that they always feel like a reduced pulse of the melodic pulse like perhaps with some you know a little added rhythmic counterpoint some syncopation but the the melody or in this case the instrumental uh, hook there, the thing that I just sang, that has its own rhythm, and then it feels like the drums are doing some kind of simplification of that, but with some little offbeat accent mark. And I really, really like that that setup. It's just something that I like about Funkin' the Broad, and it is absolutely present here. Sounds nothing. <laughs> it's also interesting that this track, unlike the previous two tracks, doesn't take long to get to its first instrumental. All of the other tracks kind of, you know, extended the verse and the hook and took you through. Whereas here, that the it moves pretty quick to this fairly long, I mean, not super long, but fairly long instrumental kind of break. And it just seems strange, like it was the, made the song feel maybe a little top-heavy or bottom-heavy. Well, it's just that that, that, that is kind of the instrumental, is the hook yeah, in this case. True. And we, we hear it yeah. a couple of times, yeah. and I guess it's just, yeah. If it's, it's an instrumental hook, so it, it offsets what we were hearing previously because the hook was not instrumental. It right. was it was more it was definitely very vocal focused. And so I think it broke up this track in a different way that was interesting to me because it seemed to be almost the opposite of the previous yeah. track. Instead, well, you actually have, I guess, two hooks in that case, yeah. because yeah, you're right, it is exactly the opposite. You have the instrumental hook followed by kind of a vocal hook. More of a refrain with a gun in your hand, I'm the boogeyman, I'm gonna come and get you. Yeah. Um which all right, at that point, let's just cut to the verse, because the verse is really where that thing that John started to describe begins. That's when Glover is really speaking through a vocalizer in this really short style. I can't describe it really well. It's I, The only way is extremely convoluted, where he's singing backwards, and then they're playing his singing backwards, so it sounds like backwards singing that makes sense. Interesting. That's the only way I can describe it. Because of the way the voice attacks each syllable... It just comes off like he's starting it in reverse because of the harder clips on the beginning or the softer clips. Like, the letters are not lining up with the pronunciation, at least in length, what you would expect. And I love this effect. I love just how creep it's going with it, how scary it's, it's very, going it's with it. It's very close, too. Yeah. It's, it's strange. And what's stranger is actually the progression of this track because... It's, even though it seems uh, at a glance to have a kind of a verse and chorus structure, 
there are some harsh uh, directional, artistic directional changes in this track. For instance, just following the verse, you get kind of this distant twittering that escapes us from the verse, and then we break from 4-4 by adding this really odd 6 beats of transition, which actually is kind of fine. I actually sort of dig offsetting us for the chorus drop. But then finally, we get another sound effect, this sort of muffled, echoey, kind of a high-gain guitar. That's what really brings us into the chorus, and it becomes a key feature of that chorus, the the clusterfuck of this chorus, because it's... Let me get one thing straight about this. It's pretty busy, and maybe it would sound to some listeners like clutter. Maybe to others it sounds dense and interesting, and I'm a lot closer to the latter camp based on the fact that I'm pretty interested in what he's doing to the harmonies here. There's definitely something wildly unique about these harmonies. It feels like every phrase is sort of like descending into a haze, into a smog, and I guess that's the boogeyman. Well, it's almost like it's, um, I guess, paralleling the drop-off of that initial riff that you I can't I can't do it I can't do the one e and a, and, That's a, right. and, and everything but it's, it's That's, that seems that long in the past at this point but it's following almost on a long form that descent that it's going through and some of the elements that do show up as we go along like that really sharp stutter that, guitar noise yeah it's not a full strum it's not a full pluck it's almost like an aborted pluck <laughs> sort of like something just hit it yeah didn't it's, let it ring out. Um, it's a that high like gain that, effect. A piece like that and, and that being a nice breakup on top of everything else. Well, with all the density or clutter, whichever side of the camp you're on, little bits like that actually start showing up as as like main through lines. Mm. Little little pieces. And then we get those breaks where the introductory rise and fall of that rhythm section shows up and it's just by itself or maybe with very light brushes on top of it usually using one of the elements we were introduced in the previous section yeah very readily just just right there a little bit of contrast you got that rise and that fall and then the rise and the elongated fall but with something cool in between it was there i noticed it, there's a core idea here that is really cool it's a great groove but i don't feel like it's used to the full extent because so much gets thrown on top of it, so much gets added to it, that I'm definitely on the clutter side of this song. Interesting. All right. Well, I will say the climax is something that we did kind of gloss over because it's it's sort of easy to gloss over because it almost feels like it's just a, an, an extension, an addendum to the chorus, and that was that instrumental in the middle that, that felt like... Conversely, I actually felt like everything was taking off and lifting up as opposed to the descent that John was making the analogy to the to the instrumental hook in the very, very beginning. And that what we kind of hear as uh, that I hear in the those harmonies in the midst of the chorus. Well, then the little add on there, the instrumental that follows it, everything is is rising up. And that feels like the, the crux. That's the the climax of this. It's all very weird. But then we do swing back to the opening refrain with a gun in your hand, I'm the boogeyman. And then we go back to another verse, which this time it feels like he's even creepier than he was the first time around. And then after that, another chorus. And then in place of where we would have gotten a second instrumental, the one that I just described, we actually get the opening instrumental hook that we described from the get-go. That, that, then a closing jam with a great flute flourish to follow. It's a very strange arc, I would yet still kind of verse-chorus oriented. I would say I was most interested by, in this track, was the instrumentation and the way he's singing. The vocals, I mean, were okay, but it was how he was singing and the strange instrumental turns that the track takes that really, I think, is what kept me drawn in, even though as a whole, 
I like the track, but I'm not in love with it. I'm in I'm in like with it, which is a weaker version of liking the track. I guess I want to say because I feel like the hook, the instrumental hook, was something that really is simple. It really is just a rise and fall, and a rise and fall with an elongation. It's a it's a it's a just a roller coaster, and every roller coaster does it. Yeah, it's 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 probably something that's been used quite a bit in this style of music, but. It is a core great idea that I just wanted so much more, you wanted more publicity but, for. I but, and I, I admit I liked it as a setup, but then I think I was really satisfied with where he took me to. I was really, I, I, I guess the reason I, I was sort of cagey about my opinion on the chorus is because I do know that when we went from the opening stuff into the verse, into the chorus, I thought there were some pretty harsh jumps there. Some things that didn't feel 100% natural. I guess even looking back on it, it's because he threw in that little six-beat interlude there that was also maybe a little bit weird. It felt like they were maybe in different songs. But I think it was a pretty great climax. I just wasn't really satisfied with how the chorus was introduced. I think the yeah. chorus was probably one of the most unique musical things on this album yeah. and it's kind of married to the instrumental that follows as well i would agree and then it just kind of like undoes what it did there by kind of backtracking the song it's it's very strange i would have to say that this is a case of you know how we were talking conditioning about mm-hmm. conditioning a few weeks ago this is sort of that because i feel like it does it does sort of link to time and place yeah. of where you might hear a track like this i think it would probably be best aided when listening loud, where you can really indulge in those jams yeah. and how complex they really are. Uh, because otherwise, some of that, some of the detail work could come across as random to you if right. you're peering too closely. But then that begs the question, like maybe he wants you to just be stand up and enjoying and dancing because it seems like that's the environment that this music is really meant for. Right. So, you know, why would I be judging it on the other thing, even though that's what we almost always judge it for, is the scru- the, the scrutiny of the headphone listen. Right. I mean, that's... It's worth bringing up, I think, mostly because also we get into more of that as we progress through this album. Yep. There are more moments like that that are affected by kind of how you're listening as well. And the last point I'll make about it is because I, 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 I did see that Donald Glover comedy special so recently, and he did a, a, a bit in it where a, a friend of his said something to the effect, like, you know, I notice you always listen to your own music. And it's like, yeah, well, if you had music that you created you absolutely would listen to your own music. It's kind of a lucky position to be in where you get to re-listen to things that you created. And I think I would agree that if I were Donald Glover, I'd be listening to this nonstop. Yeah. Just the fact that this was my own creation, I think I would be sort of wrapped up in the in the twists and and unique turns that only something that you created, you know, created. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I get that. Yeah, that, that, for sure, it's a kind of perspective that's almost impossible to have. With someone else's work, yeah, because it's not your work. Would be a, a unique case of writing for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I have to actually imprint in order to imagine that. But yeah. because I didn't create it, then I have to view it through other means. It takes a whole hell of a lot of empathy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Enough <laughs> meta talk. Let's go to track four: zombies. If we talked about creepy and maybe horror esque earlier, well, now we're almost faced with it right up front because we're gonna start off. Start off I guess off key. Not really off key. We're not we're not there yet. Well, it's like someone struck a gong, which then the gong itself transforms into a beast roaring. And then following that, we get our beat. 
which is a very slow and cagey beat, almost skulking. As if, like, if these are zombies, they're wilier than I've seen in media. (laughs) Normally, zombies are pretty predictable. Maybe there's a thematic reason for that. I'm sure there is. But, like, the the drums are just steady eights, but everything else is pretty thin. Just this keyboard, organish thingamajig, which is basically the the gurglish staccato component of this ensemble. Let's just keep it that broad. Which is basically... That's the cycle. Yeah. That that thin, that little, this little staccato stuff, which is really silly, a really silly thing for me to recreate, but I wanted to express how goofy that idea really is. But, but what builds off of this is the pain vocals are back. Not yeah. the backwards intake of breath, but like the reaching out and with the lines of all I see is zombies walking all around us. Like you can feel like the, oh no, desperation going on right here. But the zombies aren't just like, they're not neither the living dead zombies. These are, I want to say, uh, at the de- end of the day, we are the consumers. Yeah, These are the that's people the that theme. are. Yeah, that's the theme I hinted at. It's uh, a situation of corporations taking our money or our time or our pleasure or our brains and and taking it for themselves to enrich themselves. But that's a deeper meaning, and I like deeper meanings. But it doesn't really come across too too strong in that case well there was a theme for these quote unquote zombies and the theme actually I thought even preceded the verse I thought that the guitar was actually taking on the theme for the zombie and that preceded the verse that was all in the beginning it was kind of a distorted guitar with its It's, leading line it was almost like it was specifically being used with a broken amp or something like that just to add a little bit of a digital element and that shows up the zombie anthem that's the word I'm looking for (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of slight digital touches on top of anything with the ghostly synth background the vocals every every once in a while getting a little bit of auto-tune on top of it Mm -hmm. the guitar and what it's doing the harpsichord piano piece that's just like fooling around it still has a little bit of of digital tin on top of everything else keyboard organist thing I described. They're doing the creep thing. They're doing the Night of the Living Dead style in a lot of cases, but because it is obviously not just analog, it's obviously got some digital elements to it, it doesn't make it a horror soundtrack. It makes it in a commentary soundtrack when you start meshing it up with those words. Well, especially considering the lyrics from about the later two thirds of the track we have Carrie Foe who is featured on the album who apparently I think was um, on set during when he was filming in Atlanta they were working on this record there was some connection where she was around and there was no intent for her to be on the record initially it was just come listen to a cool thing I read this story online and then she ended up saying some words and he mixed it and directed her on how to do it and it just gave this kind of creep factor additionally because it's a voice we've not heard yet we don't hear again. Oh, but I I wasn't as phased by that for a very specific reason, and that's because he has changed the character of his vocals so many times that I wasn't even sure I was hearing another person. I mean, okay, this was clearly female, but there are other times where he has he goes in his falsetto to somewhat of an extreme degree that I figure like, oh, there's a bunch of other featured people. There actually are not that many featured people. It's a lot of just him transforming his vocals. But here, that's not the case. Here, he is working with another vocalist. And it's also the only time when she's doing the hook, and by the way, Carrie Foe, 
I, I love I love her last I love that last name yeah. it was one of my favorite words stolen by the English language she's singing pure she's yeah. got not a whole lot digitalizing herself no. yeah. everything Hers, else just a whisper clean. yeah we're coming out to get you we're all so glad we met you we're eating you for profit there is no way to stop it I I love that line right yeah. there it really is an interesting sentiment a social commentary sentiment and if anybody has ever listened to me talk about this stuff before I love that aspect of music but it's also a surprisingly bright spot in all the other scariness that's going on Mm. that it's actually saying something scary it's a great contrast of ideas Mm -hmm. just being presented forward on on the scary note because you started to mention those those fluttering sound effects a lot of all the things that are happening here you know not even just in this track there's so many sound effects on this album I I have to say individual things don't bother me many of them are irresistibly endearing but the general density of them is wearing on me just a bit Mm. like I'm detecting it more as uh, stuff thrown at a wall than I'm detecting composition at this point but that doesn't mean that the effect is lost and it also doesn't mean that there's no musicality in those sound effects implementation so I don't know where the hell I am. <laughs> well, well, in this case, uh, the stuff I'm on the line to that the I wall, just described. Well, the stuff sticking to the wall is definitely working for me here a lot more than it did on previous tracks. Yeah, and I guess maybe you just expect that because the 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 guise of this is a zombie attack, then you kind of you just, kind of should be you creeped see, out. You shouldn't. You see be creepy settled. things. You see action. You see things happening on the left side of the screen. And you have to pan, and it's, well, so it's no, a lot of that. At the end of the day, it does a great job of just like making you riled up a little bit yeah. making you unsettled and on un- being unsettled for not just the social message but the general idea of zombies and if you're ever going to say something about zombies it works but that's a good transition point because we have the outro bridge here where it seems the co- the chords are actually parting the clouds like it's for something that he actually was said earlier that there's no way to stop it. She had said, you know, we're coming out to get you. We're also glad to meet you. We're eating you for prop- profit. There is no way to stop it. And yet it kind of sounded like musically the fear had just left at the very, very end of this this song. But, but we do get that distorted guitar instrumental, which in itself sort of maintains some of the creep factor, but the the chords themselves, it felt more lighthearted. It was way too playful for me to, you know, fear, feel any fear at this point. It's just, you need to start, you know, kind of just talking about that solo as a separate musical element, which was strange in its own right because of how uh, independent it was. Well, yeah, it, it almost... It got to the line and just crept up to it without going over being kind of cheesy because of just the placement and just how bright it sounded comparatively. Well, not even just cheesy, but almost slapdash. Like, right. It was it was that independent, so independent as, as to kind of leave the character of the song, but then again, the character of the track is also so random because of all those earlier sound effects. So, I don't know. I guess if you judge it by that, then not a lot has changed. It's just the feeling has changed. But if it was inviting, it was warm, it was approachable compared to a lot of everything else, yet still had that twang of yeah, uneasiness. Let's just say quirky and leave it at that. Well, think if, if we're going to take the social aspect of it and talk about the actual meaning of some of these words and compare it to the music, it works perfectly because think about just slogans in general and I'm loving it just do it have it your way at Burger King and how when you take that yeah it works as a jingle it works in a commercial 
the Hesh truck's back and it's better than ever. You have to get the Hesh truck this year. But there's also a little bit of an insidious like sidestep associated with that because they're 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 cancerous. They don't go away. You never forget those jingles you grew up with when you were a kid and you were watching and there was toys or there was candies or something like that. You don't forget that. It stays with you. Yeah, there's a there's a definite bad aspect. There's a definite maniacal aspect of that sort of stuff. So approachable, enjoyable, yeah, quirky, but also a little bit out of tune, a little bit when you look at it from a light, it's got some mold on it. Well, That's appropriate. Do you feel like the last word that he leaves you with is actually, the last uh, uh, question rather, do you feel alive is actually like leaving some room for 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 perhaps it having any kind of benefit, added benefit at all? I would say that that line might represent, might, off the cuff, represent the idea of all of our consumer ideas, all of us just intaking stuff and doling out to corporations and businesses profit and doling out our time. Uh, he's asking if our compensation is bringing us back to life. Is the money we're investing into trinkets and the time we're investing into television and YouTube and all that stuff, is that making us fulfilled? Yeah, it's a no, lot that's, to read that's into, basically what I'm saying. It's a lot to read into a lot, one line. It's a lot to read into it is. one single line. It but is. Stuff like that can be that fi- profound. It is the final line. And... I feel that here he really is doing some solid artistic expression for that sort of stuff. So, this is this is the first time on this album. I really have to say, I'm I'm thoroughly invested in the music. Like oh, I'm you just front like to your, back. I'm really into this. You just like your anti-capitalism. Uh, no, no <laughs> nod. I, I I have run a small business. I'm into capitalism. Trust yeah. me on that aspect. But. It's I, I love social commentary. So this, I think, is fulfilling it very well. Yeah, it was well, an, a nice analogy. And what's interesting is when we go to track five, Riot, the title alone plays into what you're talking about. <laughs> but the song itself, it starts as if, I, I said off the air, you were opening a soundproof door into a club where a band was already playing because there is no lead up. We are literally dropped into this track and it more or less ends on a fade out. So, and it's a fairly short track, only about two, two and a half minutes. So I think as a whole, it's as if you kind of removed the middle of something and just put it somewhere, well, which is interesting. Well, uh, artistic argument here, because we're going to keep going with this. Yeah. Uh, you're not involved in said riot. You're not part of said riot. You just kind of turn the corner, and all of a sudden, there's, there it is. There it is. There yeah, it is. That's true. A riot doesn't start with a buildup. It starts with a moment that right. spurs passivity to energy and to aggression. So... There's the art argument. Sure. But I'm going to agree with that. With all sure. of that said, though, this was, you know, you start in the middle of a jam, and I, I think there's really very little that I can say that is unique about this intro because it isn't much of an intro. Again, you start in the middle of a jam. It's a lot of fairly standard funk riffs that didn't take me anywhere new. And in many ways, verse one is just an extension of that. He's still singing his, his uh, verses as if he was jamming. And then the chorus that follows that, is really just an extension of that. It's just kind of the same form that you had from the opening couple of seconds all the way up to the chorus. So I I was not really liking that as far as uh, intro and description. I like yes. setup. I like exposition. There's very little here. I'm I'm gonna defend it artistically, but musically, yeah, it's it's a little bit much to take in right away. It, but the track does pivot between 
for me, like, good moments and bad moments. It, they're not, like, bad throwaway. They're just bad in that I'm not gripped by them. But things show up. We get that spaceship noise, yeah. which I will liken to a spaceship taking off kind of a sound where yeah. it rises in pitch, falls in pitch. But it also can easily be construed as a siren of some sort. Sure. And the chorus itself I want to speak of, everyone, everyone, get down, baby, get down. More of an idyllic representation of the police and them yelling at the crowd to stop, to desist. Yeah. But more framed within a person listening to music. I, I like these aspects. There's just they're they're the fleeting aspects around the fleeting parts that are just kind of noisy. All right, well, let's get to a couple of those things as well, because the fleeting aspects, actually, there's something I did like about the chorus, even though the overall feel, the structure of it musically is very similar to the beginning. The one thing I really did like about it is the trade-off between his vocals and the backup singers. His sharpness and the grit that he has in the more heavier tracks, and this is certainly one of the more heavier tracks, they kind of just juxtapose with the more modest and soulful choir. So when everyone says... Uh, everyone, when they say everyone, he responds, everyone, <laughs> and he kind of like stretches that out. And then when they say, get down, baby, then he goes, get down, baby, you know, he's, it's yeah. that kind of thing. It's, it's reminiscent of your Sly and the Family Stone and those yeah. kind of bands, this kind of, you know, funk party jam that's happening that you're supposed to just kind of get swept up in. They it, kind of just like rework the words into beautiful harmonies, and yeah. then he's kind of just, yeah, he's just kind of swallowing the microphone. And uh, it actually reminds me of something from uh, the 99% movement, which it's going to show my liberal side because I followed it pretty heavily. Uh, one of the things was the human mega speaker. Where one person would say something and then the 40 or so people around him were meant to repeat it so that they could do crowd talking without needing any electricity, without needing a megaphone or something yeah. like that. This feels like a perversion of it in some sure, ways. Sure, I could see that. Which I'm, I'm okay with. I, I really I like it. I, like I said, I, I think... I don't know how to explain it. I, I think the song, you know, it has its moments, but as a whole it does kind of come and go in a flash and again it fades out so it really does feel like we're getting the section of a song like maybe they were messing around in the studio there's a beginning and an end that's clipped off because it was kind of meandery but this part they're like yeah that's good just throw it on like I get a sense of that a little bit but I don't know that it's that slapdash I feel like Childish Gambino is too smart for that. I'll tell you, I mean, I'll be blunt. I don't I don't mind the occasional political song, and, but this is not very meaty to me. No, so it's I, not. I, I have to agree with some of your uh, analysis of this, even in terms of just the style of singing. It was more yeah. of a musical thing. It did not relate. It didn't make me feel anything particular. No, but I don't it, know that that was the purpose. I think it was just kind of yeah. designed to be aesthetically pleasing as it was. It's just named Riot, I think, yeah. more because of what it's following than what the song was about, right. per se. Well, then I'll say the last thing. I really did like it, and it occurred at the tail end. After the verse two, there was pretty much nothing new to say there, uh, you have the final chorus. And that had the one thing that I really liked, which was this, like, kind of a, a pentatonic upward takeoff in the synth. Yeah. And it was at the very, very end, right before the fade. It happened only once. Actually, even almost during the fade, or it ushered the fade. Yeah. It didn't really contribute to the song as a whole much, but I really, really liked it over the jam. There's always things, you know, jams basically are, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks. Right, and this idea came out of that. And I, I, I loved it. It just, a little 
pentatonic synthy. It was yeah. just a great idea. I've yeah, seen, was, I've heard that it, done before, but it's, I love it. It is, and I believe you're right. It did initiate the fade, which you know when the song starts to fade out, it just kind of solidifies it as this random moment in time, isolated, that could, in theory, be going on forever. Oh, yeah, actually, that's the last point I would like to make, because it's true, I think this maybe could be applied in alternate contexts, just the way I tried to apply the uh, the earlier tracks in different contexts. I yeah. think it should be li- listened loud. Maybe even, dare I say, passively. Yeah. You're just standing up and you're in a party, but maybe you're not, like, focused intensely on this song. Then the second it plays, you're just like, oh, it's cool. It's cool, yeah. because you didn't pick up the exposition, and the exposition is not important in that setting at all. Right. Sort of just, like you said, a moment in time. Couldn't yeah. have put it better. It just it needed some more glue for the headphone listen. <laughs> all right, let's go to track six, Redbone. Now, just a little bit of an aside to the name itself. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the racial term. Which used to be kind of a heavy negative, though, from my understanding, because I did look it up, it is now means just someone of mixed heritage, usually Creole, down in Louisiana. And now has become accepted by the community. I don't know. Don't quote me. Right. I'm not well-versed on this. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, it's it's not something I've actually run across before, but I was really curious as to what Redbone meant. Right. So... If it's that definition, it kind of is telling you something right from the get-go. I mean, th- musically and and uh, vocally, like the previous track, we're getting more homage to previous, I'm guessing, influences as well as previous artists that have been in and out of these genres. Because here, it's his vocals and instrumentation mimic Prince almost in a way that seems... Um, humorous or kind of even goofy um, just because he his his vocals are big here like big big like screechy but you know kind of elongated with this passion and then the instrumentation I would to describe be... this as the extreme falsetto in fact yeah just that yeah screechy high-pitched singing style that no, I wasn't too much a fan of to be honest and the then the bass work that comes in feels kind of big and almost cartoonish and how loud it is and I think those two things together for the start of this track does give it that kind of strutty feel that a lot of Prince songs did have. Yeah, each each beat actually uh, on the bass kind of struck me as a belch or even like music made from stomach gurgles. <laughs> it's very it's, very strange. It's Zwap. Zwap. That's, that's your that's onomatopoeia? The, that's the onomatopoeia I'm going to go All for right. because that's the closest okay. one I can pronounce. Zwap. Zwap. Sure, it's, why not? Zwap. Mm, yeah, I like that actually. It gains steam. Yeah. It works with the lyrics themselves. Like, I feel like in this case, the 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 vocals are actually really married very heavily to the music without one paralleling the other. I would Which agree. is what we were getting earlier, where he would sing along with the tune. He would sing along with the melody, like, to a T. But now it feels like they're actually playing off of one another and not as closely married as before. So I enjoy that aspect. It's just, it's another one of those tracks that seems to settle a little bit too easily. It does kind of fall into a rhythm and doesn't really vary that much. There are certain tones and moments that happen Periodic that add, things. like, spice, but it's not, uh, on a whole big picture, that varying. 
Take, for example, 2 minutes 23 seconds. You have this nice little touch in the pre-chorus because the, the synth here started to, like, pitter-patter off the melody, just, like, between two notes. And just these, this little do-do-do-do-do-do, right? I, I, yeah. I, it's something that I feel almost should have been present earlier in the track because there was the, the stagnancy that you just mentioned or the general general comfortability with everything yeah. that, that had existed. And this at least added something, just just something else. But it does kind of, uh, you put it well off air, Matt, it does kind of saunter this whole track. And I didn't really, um, yeah, I just, I, there wasn't too many gleams, too many moments that made me intrigued. I would well, say that for me, what kept me intrigued is because I am a Prince fan, and he does, like, I can almost not even separate... T- if I were face-to-face with Donald Glover, I would almost want to shake him and ask, is this supposed to be a Prince song? Right. Because I get that sense. And whether it is or not, because of that connection and how much I enjoy if it's that homage or I'm imprinting that it is, that's what kept me invested in the song. But I could see if that wasn't a thing that you were really into, the song could feel a little kitschy or fall flat. I, I dislike one thing politically about this track because I'm getting tired of the phrase woke. <laughs> Stay woke yet. <laughs> I mean, only bit, not because it's political, but I just, I disagree with the sort of easy to lump in kind of like everything is that simple as stay woke. It's, it's it, That was necessary. That's actually an aspect of this track because there is a little bit of an undertone of something is chasing him. Yeah. And I think that the music actually does show that as it gains its little bits of steam. That second yeah. chorus, too, when he um, offsets re- uh, repetitions of the line with... They gonna find you. They gonna find you. Gonna catch you sleeping. Gonna catch you sleeping. Put your hands on me. Where he's he's repeating the chorus yeah. lines and sort of like imploring on top of that. Where he's he's like, don't go to sleep. Stay awake. Yeah. Don't go to sleep. It's, he's, and then using it, line, he's using it as a play, and I understand that. And that final line of that second chorus, now don't close your eyes in that deadpan silence mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh. While I would have loved that to be the finale of the track, and this is a big gripe with me. That would have been a great way to end it. It would have been a nice impact of just dead silence. Like, yeah. what happens next? The outro that follows that felt like it was... Going back to pop structure, like you have to do an outro. I don't feel like you had to do an outro in that case, especially because it became repetitive. It became the same stuff we already got, just elongated. And it did the same thing of end on a dime that we already got, so we ended on two dimes. Yeah, there and are lots of guitar solos here that yeah. aren't really, they, they, they don't, don't really add. fulfill the purpose. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's, for me personally, it didn't take anything away from the song, but I can see your argument. It, it could have been trimmed. and I guess. I mean, I don't I think, think it would have lost any impact. I think it would have possibly added to it, and that's my problem. I guess. I don't know that I agree with that. I think... I liked the way it was, but I can see how maybe there wasn't anything gained from it, but I don't think it would have gained anything from removing it either. I think it's just a part that I could have taken or leave. You know, I don't think that there's major change regardless. And now track seven, California, which is the biggest curveball he's thrown so far. And I would I, agree, actually. I yeah. love it because it feels like he actually really captured in in satire California music with this track. I would say the reason I like it, which I do enjoy it as well, is because it this song to me, as a fan of his comedy and his acting in uh, comedy sitcoms, feels the most like... Donald Glover presenting himself in a, as a character in a song. Because it, though it's 
for the most part, uncomplicated and quite bizarre and silly, it does have character, and it, it's the strongest character we've gotten yet. And I, you know, I like allusions to his other side because, again, I was more a fan of his acting than his music. It's got shakers. It it's does. got summer guitar, it's like got almost pan flute. Well, I'll get to that I know, I know, I know. I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, the trills that are in this, the woody but wet rhythm section, and all around, like, really kind of, like, bitch vocals. Like, you, this is a, this is a, this is not, like, a really upstanding kind of guy. This feels like kind of a, a squirrely, like, kind of seedy individual that I just love the wine that's in the voice. All these things get showcased like right off the bat, and then he starts playing around with these ideas. He screws with everything. Everything's got a little bit of a turn. When previously he would, like in Zombies, he would have something that sounds creepy, throw a little bit of the electric side into it, to the digital side to it, to change it just a little bit. Here he's taking those really tried and true summary uh, obvious hits for you know whatever you're doing it's going to be the fun I'm outside I'm at the beach kind of sound but then he, he screws with them enough he throws them just slightly off putting a slightly not off key but enough so that you don't quite recognize it as the the normal way of doing it not the pop eh, I, I think way. it's just the, the juxtaposition between yeah. that and the way he's singing because the way he's singing, it almost as if he's making a mockery of his own musical setup in many ways. Um, of course, yes, it is very summery. It almost feels like in one context this could just be a, hey, sit in the beach, relax kind of track. But then you listen close to the lyrics, and you do have to listen really close because you certainly wouldn't pick up a lot of this stuff just, just verbally. A lot of it has to be read. She want to move to California. She must have fucking lost her mind. She want to move to California. That's how they get you every time. She make a movie with her friends. Put it up in a minute. Everybody say it now. Ain't no loop at the minute. Everybody say how. How do you do it? You did it? I'm going to show you what you done, but enough for a finish. Pay attention. You listen. You keep losing your mind. How you want to loop this shit but looking like a vine. Um, and then the, the hook, the play, pay, they, but they... And then the hook, but they no pay for no privilege, but she broke in Koreatown and the condo you rented better get your percentage. Uh, seems like a pretty negative view, not necessarily of California, rather, but maybe of people's view of it. Well, I think... Of, it, of the, the inclination to move to California well, yeah, based my, on some shallow I, impressions. I think, I think it's a superficial look at the people <laughs> who moved to California on a whim because they think they're going to make it big by either rubbing elbows with the right person or throwing something up online. Like, it seems very kind of vapid. I'm going to go to California and make it big statement, which is could be said of any major metropolitan area where there's a, a blossoming artistic yeah. and, community. And she cites the example of who she, he wants to hang with. She wants to hang with DC Fly. That would be in the chorus. Um, who is DC a Fly. Vine star who, now go. that Vine is defunct, I'm guessing is not a Vine star anymore. Um, it's interesting. I think... I got really wrapped up in kind of the quirkiness of it, which I know is a little lame and kind of an excuse, but I don't know. It just it kind of pulled me in. I'm not going to make an excuse. I love the quirk of this track. <laughs> I just love the juxtaposition. I love the just idiosyncrasies he's putting in this just to make it feel like he's making a satire out of a whole state. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I and will I mean, say. It should be say, known that he also, I'm confident, he lives in California as well. I will say though, I the 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 lyrics themselves are a little bit 
not quite there. I, I want something a little bit stronger. You can peer into them and get them, but I feel like there would have been a more eloquent way of putting it. Oh, so there I is something about the phrasing and also the yeah, fact that almost but, uh, none of the meaning comes across through yeah, the way he sings. Exactly. But I think that's but I think that's intentional to add to the superficial, almost valid, vapid framing of the track. I think it's artistically intended. And I don't. It doesn't bother me as much because it just adds more quirky humor to it for me. Well, it just means it's a song with a catch. I mean, like you're gonna right. have to get sure. transcript. Well, I think multiple listens would be enough for me personally. But I hear what you're saying. We I need th- to get enough transcripts for things that we really do like. You yeah. know that it's not the end of the world. Uh, you know, I think that as a whole, I got wrapped up in the performative nature of the track, and I think it's in the same comedy or theater experience. I think I liked what the song was and the character of it, that that was enough regardless of the instrumentation and vocals. And surprisingly, I'm actually there with you. I usually don't go for that. But yeah, no, it was the theatrical aspect. It was just great. Like, I'm just saying, like, I could imagine him performing the song live on stage and kind of staggering around and being ridiculous. And I think that's what's getting me right. And although it's not politics, it's it's certainly a piece of what would seem like minor social commentary that I think most people would probably agree with. Well, just the idea of, okay, you watch something... And this person has produced it, and all you really do, you, you watch it and you like it, and that's the extent of your contribution. They produced something that, yeah, okay, maybe it was six seconds, or maybe it was a 50-part, yeah. 20-minute-an-episode series that they poured their soul to, and all you really did was just upvote. And it's, it's it's fishing for likes a little bit, yeah, which yeah, is a which, problem these days, but, too. But it's 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 like you you didn't do anything. You didn't pay for the privilege of right. enjoying the content. Right, you were some content. schmuck who posted a YouTube video. No, no, no. You didn't pay for the privilege of enjoying their content. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Alright, well, let's move on to track 8, Terrified. Which, I I mean, my first comment is it's a terrifying slow jam. What I mean by that is it, it, upon the kind of 10,000 foot view of this track, it does structurally feel like, you know, a 90s slow jam. However, the synth here is coming in in a certain way that it, it doesn't sound off key because, again, it's synth. It's in key. It's it's electronic. But it, it, the, the keys are kind of warped a little bit that it does give this kind of unsettling nature, which is interesting because, again, it does kind of follow an almost predictable kind of slow jam R&B flow but it's how those notes are hit where the attack is that brings that creepiness through well I guess it's that that bass here that Mm -hmm. sort of sounds like an old video game I mean I don't know exactly what era sort of in a vague sense but it really is one of the few things that are present and I think maybe it's that throwback to thinness that is maybe why it offsets you just a little bit I wouldn't go so far as to say terrified but there are a few other a few things present there's kind of a screeching from the right ear that starts doing laps around you I noticed It, it pans left and then it goes behind you and then sort of right again. It's really a cool effect. It kind of travels in slow oscillations or, or slow sequences of panning. It's pretty interesting. But you find out all of this in the first 15 seconds. Yeah, it shows, its, it shows its cards pretty quick. Yeah, yeah the hook just kind of mm. like glides into existence. It's not terribly ambitious. So again, you can't say I was really terrified there, but it was a little noirish, so that's on the right track. And uh, yeah, the bass never really leaves you, and that's probably one of the more interesting things. From what I can get from the vocals and the lyrics, it, it seems to me like the song isn't meant to be terrifying. It's meant to convey that the singer is terrified, which... 
again is perspective so whatever like i don't know i don't i don't know that it's intended to sound terrifying per se i use the term terrifying slow jam loosely it's just a slow jam that sounds a bit off-putting which you can take as whatever you want well it's that it's that straight guitar line that yeah. really does a lot to contrast all the reverb that's built around it uh, it's 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 something that's that is solid with all the fuzziness and all the other sounds that are going on. This solidifies in the hook, like that's that's what happens. The, the hook solidifies the noise that's going on to be something a little bit more digestible, a little bit thicker, a little bit meatier. But then it kind of just lets it go again. There's really no change between the two, I guess. Yeah. It's it just flows in and out, and this flow is is making everything become off as like a wash. Like okay, it's the water breaking on a beach. It's it, it comes in, it yeah. goes out, it comes in, goes out, and the sandcastle you built kind of just falls apart. <laughs> I will say, with it showing its cards pretty early, I mean, the only thing that stands out is when we get a different vocalist at the end of the track. J.D. McCrary. Yeah, and, you know, he kind of almost speaks, sings the words, which, you know, considering that uh, Childish Gambino comes from a rap background, I'm unsurprised that something like that is featured on this record. And it added, you know, kind of a stark juxtaposition for the finale, but it almost feels like too little too late. And, yeah. you know, again, I, I don't want to be too harsh on this track because I did, at the core of it, like it. But I didn't, you know, I wasn't in love with it as much as other tracks on the record at this point. Well, with those distant vocals kind of panning and echoing, which yeah. was, they were individually quite beautiful, but yeah. taken to maybe some excess. Yeah. And I guess that sort of throws us back to the problem of the first track where, you know, we, we, we finally found it again. Something that was just, it went on just a little bit too long. Yeah. Um, at least the rest of the track was uh, the rest of the album rather was sort of moving along yeah it didn't seem to stagnate that much at any other point really and again I feel like even stagnates too strong no yeah it's not stagnant that's not what I'm uh, getting at it's more the, the, the taken to excess in other words a lot of that you know what is what is really happening here it's no 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 please oh no 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 yeah. you can't run from me you can't run from me it's just a lot of that with excessive vocalization it's something that I, I find a little distasteful in some some brands of R&B and soul where I'm just like Get back to the melody. <laughs> you know, right. there's a little too much excess there. All right, on to track nine, Baby Boy, a song clearly for uh, Mr. Glover, um, Childish Gambino's uh, new son, who's, I think, only a few years old at this point. Um, you know, we've come across these songs actually quite a bit reviewing albums. There have been a lot of fathers or mothers who have put songs like this on their records, some done very tastefully and kind of beautifully, and others kind of more face value. I mean... This song is everything you'd expect for a song someone would write for their son. It's sweet, it's tender. For the most part, it's simple. You know, a lot of the impact is based in the lyrics and the lyrical content being very, you know, open about how he feels and how he wants his son, you know, what he wants from his for his son and how he wants to be a good father. And, you know, I don't know that I have a lot to say about it other than those things. You know, I, I didn't dislike it by any means, but, you know, it does start to feel, I don't want to use the word cliche, but a little bit because we've heard similar songs like this of a similar structure with the same conveyed feeling. Well, you're yeah, you're honing in a little much on the theme. And the theme, yeah, we have had that problem before because basically we have to have the discussion that the track is not meant for us, clearly. But yet it is on a 
marketed, you know, album. Right. That is, but, eh, whatever. I guess we're all just supposed to say, oh, that's a sweet gesture. Little hands, little feet, tiny heart, tiny beat. Oh, think about the time we spent falling in love together. I don't want to leave you. I don't want to deceive you. But oh, when mama cries from daddy's lies. Oh my, please don't take him away, mama. Don't take him away. It's a sad sentiment, yes. Yeah. That a uh, breakup which if is... There, which, if there's truth to it, is really there heartbreaking. There is truth to it, yeah. Oh, it is, it yeah, is. his um, girlfriend, who he had the, the his son by, yes, like, there's issues there. Yeah, okay. Mm. And that's why in the chorus, because I've had my time, oh, well, don't take my baby boy, don't take my pride and joy. I hope I stay close. I hope I stay close. This is and it's an not extremely... it's not like entirely you know personalized either. I'm sure yeah. there are other guys who are in the same boat. Sure. They may they may and relate. So there's a, there's a thing you can kind of empathize with there. But again, it's delivered in a way because of the simplicity of the song that I don't know that I get necessarily wrapped up in it. Actually, that's my biggest issue with this is that the song is not meant for me at all. The song is meant for a father to say to his son. So I feel like it's. Holding out a hand and going, no, this isn't for you. You you aren't supposed to understand this unless you're in this specific situation. And because of that, I really can't. I can empathize with the lyrics, but I can't. I can't get into this track at all. And I know it's kind of terrible to say that that I'm really not feeling for him here. But like, go back to when we did Green Day and we had that really, really bad father to daughter track. It was a track that was, from the point of view of dad to daughter or dad to son, is beautiful because you're creating a piece of art for your child, giving it to them, and they're going to have it for the rest of their lives. It's something you personally created from the ether of the universe and means them. And that's gorgeous. But it wasn't for me. I can't get that. I can't really latch onto this because of how I just don't feel like it stands up in the musical sense pantheon-wise. Well, the interesting thing is it didn't actually sound sad either. And maybe that's another little problem. You know, if you could... There's a lot that music can accomplish without, you know, there necessarily being the empathy uh, present. That Because it can force the empathy on you. Music has that power sure. in, in ways that, to affect you and bring you over to a point of view, a perspective that you never really thought you, you'd go over to. But in this track, interestingly, it's just, it's not sad. It's actually kind of smooth and serene. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really not flashy in any way. It just feels go, like a lullaby. To go back to that little sound in the beginning, it was actually sounded kind of like a, it's a, like a clavichord in, in sort of a quick 6-8, and it's just sort of one note on, the, on both the 2 and the 4. And then uh, to go to the vocals, well, there, that's certainly where most of the passion is all wrapped up in. But the vocals, I had kind of a similar reaction to you back when you called uh, his vocals as sounding sort of like Prince, when you mm-hmm. described his vocals sounding like Prince. I felt like here, it, she was leaning toward Aretha Franklin. And again, we've said he, he can really do strange things to his vocals, and I think that really is a perk. He kind of made him, himself sound like Aretha Franklin in this track, but... I, I, then it, it's so close to the point that I lost the individuality of it in a track really where I should have the utmost individuality. Now, spoilers, there's another track in this album where I think I hear Donald Glover purely in mm-hmm. his purest form. But this is not that particular track. So I'm just sort of left with this, you know, clavichord feature and a kind of interesting organ clavichord solo later, which was actually kind of interesting, but otherwise, a lot of this is the more reserved Motown soul variant 
of this album. Like the more reserved, just kind of uniformed nature of it. Nothing terribly flashy except for just simply the unique timbre of the clavichord, if that's indeed what it is. Yeah, I don't think, I, like, there's clearly some distance between John and the song, which is fine. I don't really agree with that. I I struggle to explain why, but I don't feel that same distance that I felt with the Green Day track that you mentioned previously that we all didn't like. I think here, either because I'm just simply enjoying the track as it is, or because the lyrics are drawing me in, I think ly- the lyrics narratively are, but I'm not... there's not a strong empathy for his situation. Like, there should be, but I'm not getting that from the vocal delivery of the instrumentation alone. That said, as a song, I find myself enjoying it. I I don't feel like it's not meant for me in a way that you have like an arm's length with it all right well there's there's no point in using this song necessarily as the poster child of it it just it occurs at an inappropriate place in the album you know the place where we're all just a little bit like uh uh-oh two more to go yeah so let's go to track 10 the night me and your mama met which is sort of a different take yeah it's it's playing on the uh the intro track um a little bit and there are some nods to the instrumentation from the intro track here this in fact it's all instrumentation right oh just a little bit of uh harmonies later that's about it right so we get yeah we get some vocal harmonies but this is an instrumental piece and it's got this interesting mix that you know uh, persists through most of the track but starts with Two guitars, one strumming acoustically, and then one kind of punctuating it electric. And I like that pairing. It's something that we've heard before, but not quite like this. And I think letting the acoustic breathe and using the electric as just the accent, I think is a really nice mix that kind of defines the song's trajectory almost. Well, the other aspect that I think actually does a lot to define the... The first section before we get something really awesome. The O's and O's, and we don't like those here, but they're great here. I do enjoy well, the them. Cor- I think it goes along pretty well. You know why? Because I don't emote. feel that they're robbing me of lyrical content, because there's no lyrical content, and you can't argue that fact. And then we also get the glockenspiel. I guess yes. we officially get it, because we were able to find that it I is credited that it is. here, but it sounds like the thing I was calling a xylophone earlier. Right. And well, they're pretty simple. A nice little brightness on top of everything else that's kind of pretending to be the electric guitar but in contrast with the vocal work it's like we're getting one version paired up and another version paired up then it's an electric guitar it's just very it's back to that screechy electric guitar again that's a little bit later but oh i do want to throw back to something that matt was describing in the beginning because that was another electric guitar but it was a bright 60s version like Mm -hmm. that era of electric guitar kind of womp kind of sound to it the more onomatopoeia but that was in contrast it worked really really well with like the sort of uh, acoustic effect which i think was maybe more like a mandolin but i'm not entirely sure it's hard to tell it had a tinniness that felt like it could have been a mandolin or could have been some kind of stringed instrument with a resonator built in but it did feel very naturalistic and then we go all rhythm and we cool here for a little bit just enjoying the ride and then a rock guitar like a rock capital r guitar shows up a screechy rock guitar and it tries to do everything a rock guitar 
should do for a song. Well, I think it was trying to do the night me and your mama met. And it was yeah. that it was it was a little brief, which might be saying something, but it was also awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's, for the length of the song, it wasn't that brief, and I think that it did it, it, it stuck around just long enough to kind of show off a little bit and be playful, which plays into what Steve was saying. It works on the whammy. We work with uh, some speed work here and there, some speed picking. It's it starts to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That's kind of like identifiably nineteen sixties rock solo work. A little yeah. bit here, a little bit there. It's drawing from all over the place. It's the sort of thing that you would have got long form for minutes and uh, hopefully hours on end with like Jimi Hendrix. Yes, it's I, not I, that and cal- I agree with that I agree, caliber. I agree with that comparison actually, but it, it does feel like it stretches that. It like it it takes more liberties than even Hendrix would take. But, but Which minus, is something. Well, yes, but minus the virtuosity because exactly. it's also not as it's not as showy. It just takes liberties, and that's why at times it was definitely hard for me to. And I have a threshold for some pretty weird stuff, but it is, there were times where it wasn't quite a hundred percent pleasant. But then again, it's almost like that halfway pain pleasure of again the yeah. night me and your mama met. And then the aforementioned mama. And then I love how it just just leads into a simple sway rhythm guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're cuddling, and it's aw, and it's actually a really cool piece of music to really kind of represent a night of passion. I I like the way it it builds itself. Well, and it's paired really well with the final track. I think they just I don't know that it introduces it, but it's more I like how beautiful and sincere he sounds for probably the first time on the record in this track. It's a post-coitus song. I love the illusion that's going on from that kind of cuddly outro of post-coitus, I want to call it, into this first time we're really just getting, as C- Steve mentioned earlier, the, the honest, true voice. Well, the un, unadulterated voice in many ways. I mean, it is just him. It's, you, I don't know what that really means on the, at this point in the album to get his voice, but I can only assume it it, it does speak to a form of sincerity. Yeah. Everything else was kind of making its own unique point. This is uh, Everything else quite a bit more natural. This is him. I don't think that the the... Well, actually, no, there are some connections here, especially considering that the last track, uh, no, excuse me, two tracks ago, when we were having the, uh, the, the, the baby boy discussion, there was that, that phrase, walk tall, little one, walk tall, and now this is about stand tall, which I imagine has still kind of swung back to uh, being more as a general advice for yeah. his kid. But now you see, now this is exactly the, uh, this is a perfect contrast for our discussion because this is something that I feel reaches out to a lot of other people in term, and also reaches out to his kid. Let me just read a little bit before describing some things. When the sun is rising over streets so barren, since the evening colors flash before my eyes, I feel like a child so young and new in 92. I listen to what my father said. So he's passing it down, what yeah. he was taught, down to his kid. Keep all your dreams, keep standing tall. If you are strong, you cannot fall. There is a voice inside us all, so smile when you can, when you can. That is a song for your kid, your sister, your brother, your parents, your anyone in the world, really. Because, and in this case, generality, universality is really, I think, to his benefit. But it's not just that. It's the structure of this song that is most interesting. It... In general, it's kind of a, a two-part sequence, but um, 
I enjoyed that the melody itself, even forgetting the fact that it's his voice, the melody itself was quite a bit more classic and also very well written, kind of expanded on itself, and then instrumentally, everything just seemed balanced. For the first time, we have, you know, there are certain instruments that feel like they have the spotlight. You don't have the clutter that we've had at various times, but also not the thinness that we've had at various times. You don't have either extreme, everything is balanced. And for the hook, the um, keep all your dreams, keep standing tall, that's kind of, almost sounds like a children's choir. So it's that innocent. And and I think that was a good instrumental choice. Get, get the kids together. I don't know if it was actually kids, but that's certainly how it felt. And uh, smile when you can. How can you go wrong? But that's only verse one. Then we go into verse two with a more of an R&B bass kick where the bass really steps up a notch and the choir, that's where the choir really adds in with that second chorus after the second verse. Yeah. Because from there we transition and we're getting like a really awesome transition with flute and keyboard playing off of one another. That was probably one of my favorite, favorite transitions yet. And... Verse 3, where the auto-tune steps in to start doubling his voice. And so he's now got the vocalizer effect again. But But it's, for all the natural singing, it's perfectly meshing up with the message here. But what's really interesting is then after that verse, there is this sudden stop. He says a phrase, and it's crisp again, and then the song finishes. Let's read that in its entirety. So this is what I would call the, the, the part... B of the track, which um, really does pick up the pace, you know, or the bass certainly picks up the pace. It's kind of, it's certainly a new verse, occasionally, occasionally vocalized with a little bit of that little auto-tune sequence, but it's uh, barely noticeable. It's all, it all fits together. And the words are, if you cannot, oh, there is more to you and me. There is more than they can see. I'm on your side. There is more out there and somebody cares about you. But now all amidst this, remember, we've kind of tacked on a little bit of that vocalization. It's still there in that somebody cares about you. And then finally, the last word is, I do. And there, no vocalization. No nothing. No instruments. No verb. None of that stuff. And then it almost felt like a solid four seconds of silence. Before before we get to the remainder of the track. The remainder of the track. and The synth interlude. Kind of an 80s synth explosion accompanied with a slide and we bring back the chorus of the the children's choir here at this point and it's all new material here by four minutes and 15 seconds you know it, it, the the synth thing had really been impressive enough but now we get the flute along with these two new synths two new synths see better yeah. than one and it's it's kind of like this motif that over and over again is one and uh, two and right it's just kind of very steady but it's later doubled by this more gurgling synth but it's the flutes in the background that are that are more interesting here because this is less mechanical than the one and a two and a and instead they're stretching it they're outlining that that rhythm in you know classical rhythm form like more blending here which means it means breaking it up overlapping and converting it into this like fine pesto of motifs this was my favorite section I think not just of this track but of the album and that's pretty insane considering I can't recall the last instance in which the last track is almost unequivocally my favorite song and has most of my favorite moments for an entire album I mean as far as finales go this is not bad ill that's not done we do go into the outro and the outro he has one bit where he kind of just imparts knowledge where he stops singing just talks just talks mm-hmm. into the microphone which is more reminiscent of his hip-hop stuff that he's done in the past there's and a lot of spoken word in that too it's paired with another acoustic section very heavily acoustic that's just happy 
Like it's the final point he's leaving us on is a really happy, uplifting point where in most of this album we were getting creeped out or attempted to at least, or we were getting distorted. We weren't really seeing everything just straight up. Everything was kind of cagey. Everything was skewed. Here it's just presented. Well, we haven't had a message as as blunt as smile when you can, when you can. Um, but yeah, I did, really did like how, for such a simple message, he was able to transform it into something really complex. You know, there are a lot of stops and starts to this end, this end stretch. The vocalization, we slide to there is more out there. You know, all these grandiose statements. The children's choir hook comes back and then we slide back into it. The acoustic guitar is added. And the outro jam was just... It, it, it goes back to what I said about everything being re- really well blended. It it sent me over the hump. Yeah, and I would say for sure that this track also does what the intro track did to a point, kind of alluding to what was going to be on this album. There are, you know, from the vocalization to the instrumentation to even the tone, the, this is a conclusion that is touching on what we had gotten previously, which I like. It's... This might be one of the great closers that we've had all year, if ever, I would say. It's just a really strong, strong final track. And strong track, period. Like, I could go back and listen to this on its own, for sure. And it's what finally puts the title of the album, Awaken My Love, in context. Because we were given an introduction with the first two, three-ish tracks to what the story was going to be about, to some extent. But only in retrospect with Boogeyman onward, up until Terrified, we were really getting life lessons. Like, that's how I view these tracks now, as warnings to a child or to the someone of wisdom being imparted upon someone. And they are stories with a little bit of cloud to them, which is why I think we get so much distortion, why we get so many random effects on top of stuff. By the time we get to... Baby Boy, things are still, they're solidifying, but it's the last two tracks that really do show the flashback we've gotten previously has has come around and we are now, we're there. We're at the present. Everything is clearer. We're, we, the sepia tint is gone, <laughs> so to say, and we are actually there with Childish Gambino and his son on his knee as he's telling him all these stories, as he's explaining his life, his son's life to him and how he came about and how their his parents came together and all the the pitfalls that he's at the end of the day you're never going to you're never going to be able to prevent your child from making the same mistakes. Maybe they're not going to be the same exact mistakes, but they're going to have to make those mistakes. All you can really do is give fair warning so that their mistakes won't be as bad. And that's how I kind of view this album as sort of as sort of his his wisdom to his son, which is an interesting concept. It's not too far away from other albums that we've both done on air and that I've listened to separately. It's it's not unusual in that sense, but it is very personal once you look at that final track. I don't really feel it throughout the album until I get the, 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 the long view of it. So for that, I, well, I like the theme. I do appreciate the arc, and this this final piece does a lot to show how the arc kind of devolves to become very 
distortion heavy and then re-solidifies itself. So musically, it does go through its own motions and I think that's solid as well. But there's, for me, just uh, there are a lot of shortcomings in the music itself. It, it feels like he could have been pushing the boundaries without having to go so deep with the layers or he could have expanded upon simple themes with heaviness. At times I wanted him to tone back and get less layers and at times I wanted more layers. There were brief moments and not so brief moments with some of the tracks like Zombies or California where I enjoyed so much about it that the flaws definitely were lost to the, the, the fun parts, the interesting parts and the enjoyable parts. But still arc and theme and that final track will only push it so far it's a it's a little bit of a too little too late situation so it's still under a four and it's pretty heavily under a four i'm gonna i'm gonna put this at a three six yeah this was a moment by moment sort of album for me um with the exception the strange exception of the final track uh which i almost feel is a track that managed to get away with a lot of the things that seem consistent on this album because i don't know he just he he found the right arrangement of those things that i said earlier he was sort of throwing at the wall uh, but that doesn't mean that there's no there's no organization to this album a lot of it is is very much like he had a vision for how it wanted to sa- how he wanted it to sound and I think it was very funk-inspired, but in, in, no no specific track on this album feels like it's, you know, a 30-, 40-year-old piece. It feels like a modern version of funk. It doesn't feel like the, the kinds of stuff we've encountered earlier, where it's just, it's in another era, it's, it's completely um, wrapped up in the history of the genre. It's, I would argue that track two did feel like it was from the past. Maybe yeah, right. Maybe track that two. one track, but but for the most part, the album as a whole didn't. For yeah. the most part, I think to, for me, it's moment by moment. Yeah. Some stuff did, some stuff didn't. I think the production the production is very modern and very high quality. Uh, so that that sort of leads me to strange place because I need to really break down this album by the moment. I am with John in thinking that as an album, front to back, beginning to end, I'm not seeing the full arc. I didn't get an experience that felt very very full. I, I do know that track 11 can be kind of isolated from this album, and I don't think there's a lot of setup for it. I, I might disagree with John on that. I think you can, in retrospect, view it as being set up, but it's not necessarily, like, it is a pretty isolated piece that I think a lot of work went, went into in order to give us a really, really great finale. For that, I'm really thankful. But I think he wanted this to be an album where he made a lot of individual points he certainly did. There was an overlying theme, absolutely. Lots of uh, uh, morals of of avoiding certain things in life, avoiding certain pitfalls, and uh, I guess trying to maintain your morality in the process. A lot of that is there, but the, the musicality of it sort of takes right and left directions. The analogies are kind of bizarre, and no one is quite like the next. Eh, maybe that just means he wanted to make a diverse album. I just I just wish there was the song arc on a more consistent basis. I think that's what I was really, really missing here. Uh, that puts me kind of in the same boat as, as John, in that it didn't really quite make the fours for me, because I know we use the phrase too little, too late a lot, and I certainly have had 
I, I can actually think of one recent example that contradicts my uh, statement before, where this was the, the finale that kind of transformed my opinion on the album. There actually was another finale that I really did not expect, and it was really recent. I shouldn't forget it. It was actually just two, episode 219, Lossal, the last track there. You know, that was a much more... I think one of the reasons we we threw that over the four is because that album was was really much more experimental, and maybe that's what I needed in the end. If you're gonna do funk, maybe I I guess as much as I may have been critical of his song arcs, I think what I really wanted was the the texture experimentation in, in this because that was clearly my reasoning for throwing uh, Lossal over the fours. Um, just the in the interesting nature of what he was doing of the pro- the sonic project. So th- that's really the more important thing than whether you have a great finale. And that's that's you always have to look at album consistency because that's what we're looking at. But I can see many instances in which this album could really be plucked, diced in in various different ways in order to appease certain environments. So the most obvious one is one that we mentioned earlier, and that is just, you're out there, you're dancing, it's funk, it's gonna work. Uh, for that, yeah, this is um easily high threes. I'm gonna give it an optimistic 3.75, because there were enough individual ideas here that I think he can compose very well in the small scale. I think I needed more of the macro scale here. This is very easily in that ballpark. Great with the moments, but the other stuff needs more cohesion, more glue. As I said earlier, when we were discussing background and experience with um, Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover. See, other people have them. Um, I was closer to his um, comedy and his acting than his music. I did listen to some of his uh, previous songs. Um, he's actually sampled in um, one of Adam Warrock's song called Beast I Is. He took a, a specific sample from one of Childish Gambino's rap songs and built a song around it about Invader Zim, which I thought was very clever. Um, but, you know, I didn't have a, a fine-tuned experience with his previous music. I liked it, some of it. I didn't like more of it. However, this being completely different from everything else was exciting to me because, again, being a fan of Donald Glover the person, I really wanted to get into his music some more. Um, on the whole, I enjoyed the record. Um, the, the valid points that have come up so far, I don't really need to echo. You know, I think you both made really good points, and I'm kind of strongly in the same boat as Steve, though, that there were a lot of really great moments, but whole songs... I would I could probably count on one hand that I really dug, and for sure I feel the impact of the final track was one of the strongest. Though I would argue, ten and eleven together make a really good pair. Um, they don't need to be paired, but I think together they were stronger for it. Um, but yeah, I don't know something. There's I feel like this album's missing something, and sometimes it's on it, it's it's not tangible. I can't always put my finger on it. Like last week's album that we did with Mike Rognetta. Upon subsequent less listens, I've really gotten more into because there's something he said last week that I really dug is that one of the things he loved about that album the most is every time he listened to it, he found something else. And I'm experiencing that as well. I've only listened to this album three or four times, so maybe I do have to give it more time. But that's the one big thing that I feel is missing here. That might be that thing I can't put my hand on that I found is I don't I don't gain more from every listen. I gain more enjoyment from the songs I like, but I don't 
fine details I missed before. Which is ironic, considering at times it really is quite busy. Yeah, but I feel like the even in those busy moments, the things I liked, I honed in on, and I processed everything else, even if it wasn't at the forefront in every moment. Um, but I'm in the same ballpark as Steve, too. I think that, I mean, it's undeniable that Donald Glover a.k.a. Childish Gambino, is a talent. He succeeds in many places. He's a renaissance man, as, as Steve said. You know, he's doing all of these things at once. You know, but, you know, I, I'm going to hit it with a, a 3.75 as well. I like it. If he did more funk, I would totally be on board with it. Um, I would actually be interested in seeing him mix funk with hip-hop. And do some interesting crossover between the two styles that he does. I think there's a lot of really cool things you could do there. I don't think I've ever experienced that before. Oh, um, it, it's it a lot, there's a lot of it. There's <laughs> plenty of it. No, but like on purpose. Like I don't think I've ever I've ever done oh. it before. Well, yeah, it's out oh. there, and I think it would be cool if he did that. But anyway, yeah, three point seven five. Um, I am super jazzed though to see him play Young Lando Calrissian because damn, that's awesome. Speaking of which, he should throw some jazz on top of it while he's out of uh, he's out of that might right, be exactly. funk, jazz, hip hop, R and B, like all of it. Yeah, just put it all together. Maybe some Motown. He's good with the Motown. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and thanks again, Mike, for um, recommending this at the end of last show and off the air last week. We appreciate it. I hope you liked our review. Comment with your opinions. So today's topic kind of stems from this album, but it also stems from a lot of different discussions we've had, which is. We've, Wait, we've about, had a lot of discussions. Well, the, some of them have had a theme, a reoccurring theme <laughs> I noticed, which was we'd like to talk about the music we'd like to listen to while doing X or while at Y or by doing Z. Like, we, so there's some music that Wait, we enjoy. Wait, is there algebra now? I'm confused. Yeah, no. <laughs> wait till we get to sign. Uh, uh. Some of the music we've talked about has been great music to listen to loud. I love listening to this no, type true. of stuff yeah, loud. Yeah. Or I love listening to this type of music in the car while driving on long trips. Or this is great music that I've always enjoyed when I'm feeling depressed. Well, we keep talking about what we like about music in these situations, but there's a problem with... Some things I enjoy in that when we take them out of those situations, they stop working. And I don't mean that they're not as impactful or anything of that sort. I mean, it's it's worse than that. It, it stops being just enjoyable music because I'll be straight up. At this point in my life, there's very little like electronica techno and electronica trance that I listen to outside the car. And I used to listen to a lot of that stuff. But I only listen to it when I'm driving. It's it's become driving music because if I'm not doing that, if I'm not speeding along, I don't I don't speed. Don't arrest me. If I'm not speeding along, going too fast, it just loses so much of its meaning that I I it, it washes by me these days. It is the question of music with caveats. If you're describing a piece of music to someone else that you want to recommend, then. Is it necessary to add all of the caveats to the list before you have effectively explained, like, what that particular piece of music is good for? And I guess to a greater extent, when you add all these asterisks, these little footnotes to the piece of music that you're recommending or that you claim is your favorite, does that really, in the end, diminish the importance of the work? Because if it can only be enjoyed in so few settings, then uh, <laughs> you're kind of... 
you're kind of downplaying it a little bit. I, well, I could there argue may, that... Uh, one would argue a better work would have taken into account those considerations. Mm, I would argue that if the work is really good, it requires your undivided attention, so you need those specific moments. <laughs> That's like, a good argument. Like, like, for my example, for what John's talking about, uh, which I've not talked about even at all on this podcast, which is the Hamilton soundtrack. Oh, the Hamilton you, you, cast you like the, you like the Hamilton you, soundtrack? You haven't talked about I'm it not, at all. No, no. Really? Um, I'm surprised. The, the, the interesting thing about Hamilton is I did get very obsessed with it after seeing the show and then the cast recording was released. But I found myself only really listening to it either on my commute where I was isolated in the fact that I'm listening to it through giant headphones and not talking to anybody, or when I'm in a long car ride with, say, my wife where... You know, we're enjoying just singing along to the whole thing and following the narrative. But that's just the thing. Because it's sung through, or in this case, wrapped through and sung through, the whole narrative comes through in the entire cast recording. So you can follow the whole plot through it. But listening to isolated songs, or even more importantly, trying to talk over it, is almost impossible. And so unless it's being listened to in silence or I'm listening to it and like just engaging in it auditorily and really following the narrative, it's less likely to be on just in the background. Unless unless I have it low because I want it to help me pass the time. But for the most part, that's something that needs to be isolated and listened to. And that's because the work is profound and phenomenal and you want to focus on every intricate moment. Great argument. And now I'm going to go with the, the, the cudgel right here, Been that loud music is better for some things. <laughs> Disturbed. I love Disturbed. I still have some of their CDs. And yes, I still use CDs, even though I have... Kids, CDs are these... It stands for compact disc. Oh, There's I explained that to know, what it was in the previous episode. <laughs> System of a Down. Another one of those bands that they just work better when loud. And I'll be honest, stuff like The Sickness or Corn just isn't as good when it's quiet. You yeah. turn the volume down, it kind of sucks. And it's hard for me to say Disturbs The Sickness, which is one of my favorite albums from uh, my early 20s, late teens, kind of sucks, even Ugh. though I still enjoy it. Just because of volume. But that, Just... see, that's dangerous because now you're saying, well, then the decibels themselves are really what's affecting you, yeah. not the music. Yeah, and that's that's what hurts me. That's what, that's what hurts me. The, Welcome my, to growth as my, a fan of music. In my black stone cold heart, that's hurt. That's that's painful but, about but that. It's, yeah. it's interesting. I've been loving decibels all this time. It's interesting, also though, because caveats can come in in strange ways as well. Like emotions can play into it, which we've touched on before. But like, I have a, a, a dance playlist that I curate on Spotify that I've used for parties and some other things. And for the most part, it's upbeat, fast paced dance music, pop, you know, synth, electronica. But it's all fairly upbeat, fast, and, and dancey. Uh, hence, dance playlist. I don't really listen to dance music when I'm depressed because, you know, I'm the kind of person who likes to work through what I'm feeling yeah. while listening to the music. And so something sad put on or heart-wrenching... Something like that, it feels like you're lying to yourself right. a little bit. Whereas if I put on something sad or heart-wrenching, it's cathartic. Uh -huh. I even cry, and then I move forward, and then maybe I listen to dance music. Who knows? And it may just be the opposite for others. Some yeah. people do actually need the opposite thing. The distraction, yeah. if you will. Otherwise, it's possible that something that exists in the same ballpark of what you're feeling could just keep you in the hole. And yeah, you yeah. just sink deeper. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. There's even uh, stuff like Weezer. I, I love my Weezer. I still will love my Weezer. 
but the earlier stuff I'm finding because I grew up with it while listening with my brother or even Matt, I mean, we played it quite a bit, or other friends, like it was such a communal thing. I can't quite enjoy the blue or green album or Pinkerton as much as I, I really do enjoy The Last Two. It's interesting you bring that up because actually a caveat that I found to relate this to other media as we've been doing lately with movies Sometimes caveats for comedies is context. I mean, uh, so a few years back, or might be more than a few years, they reshowed the original Ghostbusters movie in a theater, which I never experienced when it came out. I was too young. But watching it with other people in a group and mm-hmm. seeing what they laugh at and laughing with them, like that's really great. And I find those kind of caveats don't always come up with, like, think of your comic book movies. Or yep. like, me and Steve just saw Rogue One recently. It's great in a community, and I love Star Wars movies in a community. But those movies, I feel like I need less of the community with it because I can okay. kind of pull everything from it on my own. No, that's actually a really good point. I sometimes feel that way because you, if you're surrounded by people who have their set of expectations for work, then you don't really want that coloring yeah. your expectations because you don't want to feel something in wrongly, if that right. makes any sense, yeah. like by proxy of someone else. You want to just genuinely feel it. And in that case, even though we always use this phrase, I think it's best to... Do it in a vacuum. Yeah. The vacuum would just be you and the work, and yeah. that would be the most the most real. But as Storm mentioned, Ghostbusters, which uh, is a movie you know very well, right. and when I saw the original Star Wars trilogy in theaters, and I did go to all three of them, and it was amazing yeah. because I was familiar, and everybody around me was expecting the same exact thing. Star Wars, A New Hope, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader, Explosions, People know what Star Wars and is. Chewie. Uh, it well, was everything I wanted it to be, and I was sharing it, even though we weren't making eye contact, with a packed theater, just all of us experiencing that same moment. But it was something we're familiar with. Well, yeah, I think that taps into nostalgia as a group activity at yeah. the core, whether it's music, movies... Whatever else, video games, nostalgia is a group activity, and so I think that's part of it too. But it also has to do with introverts and extroverts, I think, a little bit. You know so, why? Because there, the difference. There are certain conditions under which someone might be more prone to be rewired than other people. Yeah. I mean, like, oh yeah, you're in a group, they're laughing, I'm gonna laugh too, and then other people be like, no, <laughs> I know who I am. It's tough. Well, there's also uh, just a setting for some movies like that to. To, to keep this sidetrack going, like I saw the the reimagined Star Treks, the first two in theaters, which they were really good in theaters. I thoroughly enjoyed them. And while I'm more of a Star Wars and Star Trek fan, for those Trekkies out there, I thought they were good. But the newest one, I did not quite get the chance to see in the theater. Yeah. And I don't want to see it now because while it actually seemed to have gotten better endorsements than the previous two reimagines. This one, because it's out of theater, because I'm not seeing it on the big screen for the first time, I'm less inclined because I don't want to really upset that motion that I already had going with it. Final point on movie context and caveats before we go back to music. I have the opposite feeling caveat, the opposite grandness with uh, Avatar, which I saw in theaters in 3D IMAX, which was the way to see that movie. Um, um, because it was the first time we really had truly filmed 3D movies and it was lush and beautiful and then I bought Avatar on DVD 
And it's, where did it go? Yeah, like it really the movie falls short without the context of the special effects in the huge theater. It but was, no, no, no. I will, I will say for me, the movie actually gained a lot of quality to the actual storyline. Uh-huh. When I wasn't I being distracted, I disagree. I disagree. No, it's I Silence it was, of the Lambs. I thought it was better. Uh, Dances with Wolves, rather, in Space. Yeah, it was Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> it, was, it was Dances with Wolves in Space, and I disagree. Was but, I no, watching? it wasn't Dances with Wolves. It was Fern Gully in Space, all right? Let's... Fern Gully is Dances with Wolves. No, Dances and Wolves is Fern Gully. Oh, I don't care which one came first. Fern Gully is <laughs> yeah, yeah. a But anyway, but bringing it back to music, I think what's also interesting for caveats and context, like talking about playing on the volume thing, is we often talk about how certain works work better in headphones versus through speakers, yeah. which we've touched on multiple times. Yeah, let's face it. We kind of just picked a topic that really consumes many other topics. Right. Subtopics but, 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 but there's a plenty of pieces that I've listened to that don't work on speakers. Yeah. At all compared to what a headphone experience is, or like. even the concert experience. You know, yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I think I can say this with some confidence that some of my most profound musical experiences have actually been quite specifically listening to certain classical pieces on headphones. Mm-hmm. And that may seem strange for a lot of people. Of course, number one. The obvious thing is that classical music was written during a time in which there were no headphones. How could someone take that into account, right? Well, they couldn't, but it works, and it works really, really well. And that's not to diminish what, you know, certain classical pieces have been for me in concert. It always depends on the concert hall, it depends on the acoustics, it depends on the performer, the piece, the era, the the audience, the amount Mm. of coughing present, everything, (laughs) right? Um, but a lot of times I, I do feel, even taking all that into account, sometimes going to see it is more for the experience. Just just for the experience. of, of So I can say, like, I saw that in concert. Um, there, I'll, I'll get specific, you know, in, 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 in reviews and various other things. But otherwise, it is for the experience. I think some of my better concert experiences, though, to be, to be truthful about it, really have been some more experimental rock concerts. I think they've been some of my more profound because, I don't know, just because <laughs> there's not really a reason there it's just because i think maybe their work was written to have amplifiers in mind you know mm. maybe there is a little bit of a combination of the decibel thing maybe i'm guilty in concert of experiencing what john has apparently been guilty of for years concerning some of his uh adolescent favorite bands i don't know but that's it, it really has has been true for me in my history uh, actually one of my to, to to play off the classical style uh, one of my favorite Probably one of my only considerable favorite music for the Christmas season. We're not going to talk about it this year. The Nutcracker. But specifically, I don't know what orchestra, but there's this Russian orchestra CD I have mm-hmm. of the Nutcracker. It's a little stodgy, but it works so well for the Nutcracker sure. that I've heard multiple versions of this because I do like the score to that ballet. But the specific stodgy Russian version of it... <laughs> Actually, is my favorite, even though it doesn't take any liberties or anything like that. It's just for me, my my favorite rendition of said piece, and that's another thing you get with classical is that the individual tastes, yeah, the performance, of not just the actual orchestra, but even the leader, the guy actually, the the guy doing it, he's going to be doing things differently, even if you get the same X number of people making the music. I'm glad you described it as being stodgy or at least a little off, because a lot of times I think that is what adds to the uniqueness of these things as they imprint onto you, as your nostalgia kind of takes root with them. I think also there was a, a Chopin 
um, Polonaise, I think it was Polonaise in F-sharp minor that I had on a vinyl going back years and years and years. It's not the best version. It ain't Rubenstein. It's not Horowitz. I don't know who the hell it is, but it's the one that I think of, and his particular, his particular action, his approach with that piece is still one of my favorites to this day. It's not one of the most popular Polonaises. Well, and also to, to touch on what you guys were both talking about with concerts, too, is there are plenty of people I know who have offered context of live shows as being better for certain bands than listening to it on a CD. Oh, yeah, no, or it sounds e- great, but it's so much better live. It's like, so much better live means but, that it but kind of sucks on CD. Well, but mm-hmm. but even more so, like, a band like that I have a love-hate relationship with lately, but I was very much in love with in high school was the Bare Naked Ladies. They have an, um, an, uh, a live album that I'm blanking on the name of now, but that's how I was introduced to the band. My friend said, here, you got to hear this record first. And I loved it, and it kind of fueled my love for the rest of their stuff. But that's a poor way to introduce, because a live version is always going to be different than a pre-recorded version from the studio. And at the same time, I could think of a couple of bands I've seen live that really weren't nearly as good. Like, it just doesn't work live. But first, before you do that, here's the thing. Matt, you kind of brought us back to to the discussion a little bit, because in that case... You were recommended something. Yeah. All right? And so that context adds weight to it, that too. That con- specific context. Had it been in any other way, do you think you would have grown to love the band in the same way? Maybe? I don't know. It's interesting. I, like, Korn also, my love affair with Korn in the early days was here, a guy saying, here, you got to check out this album. And then I loved it and went back and bought their other albums. So I don't know. I think... Well, when someone says, to use the aforementioned example, when someone says, oh, you... you you got to hear them alive, though. That's when you'll really love them. Does that does that discredit the artist? If it basically does it, because like John said, yeah, he, he was joking can. a little bit because he was implying that yeah, when people say that, they're kind of implying mm. the discography is sketchy. Uh, or I would say they're the- implying. I, I want to take this one. They're implying that the emotional connection with all the other people around you while listening to a somewhat unique version instead of mass-produced song or piece. Yeah is better than sitting by yourself listening to it in your car or on headphones or something like that. And I can That's further... That's the implication. And I, well, yeah, and I don't think it's an insult because I would further point out, like, there are bands that I like on CD for A reason, and I love them live for B reason. Like, the band 311, fantastic on album. They have a great instrumentation, great singing, great songwriting. But, However, their live concert, everyone dances together, there's high emotion and, and, and passion and just kind of a movement in the air. But and I enjoy them both differently. You wouldn't for say reasons. it's better live. You would say it's a different experience live. I guess When you so. say something like, oh, they're so much better live. It's like, oh, their live show's great, but they're so much worse on CD. Because that's the exact opposite when you're using adjectives. I guess so. And that's, my, that's, that's the complaint I have when I guess you say something matters, like that. Yeah, because Which I, is think, why, I think what most people mean is the studio album is a good place to start, but they really get into it with it live. I'm but like, are, well, remember, it also depends. Like, there are certain people who, if you have a million-dollar record collection, mm-hmm. but you're not a concert goer, right? Then for that person... That, that will be meaningless. They're only yeah. going to care about how good their disco- the person's discography is. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, who's more important, the artist or the consumer? Because there, is no there are, are artists that. that also write only for one 
as well. Like the dis- their discography is an afterthought. They write for live. Well, that's actually one of the big things about the Beatles when they went through the career after the Shea Stadium. They they're like, all right, we're not doing concerts anymore. Right. We're going to stop making music for concerts because concerts don't ex- allow people to experience our music the way we want them not to. In, not in posterity. And yeah. that's another reason why. Hey, well, I, there are concert CDs though. Yeah, there is that little touch, but that's yeah. more of a recent thing. Yeah, but for me, when I try to sell an album or a band that, whether we do it on the show or not, when I try to sell it to somebody who doesn't do what we do here, doesn't really dive in, I use as few words as possible. <laughs> I'm very tagline oriented, and I go, "Well, who do you listen to of this genre?" And I'll be like, "Like that, but slightly different in this way." And that's that's the extent of me explaining. No, yeah. you're gonna love this part. No, this is a great song. Or no, wait till you hear these words. It's just I keep it simple, and I try not to color anybody's opinion because I know my opinion is going to be significantly different when I'm doing a recommendation. I guess the easy answer is try to tailor make what you're doing when you're doing it, and uh, as for the rest of it, just try to appeal to as many people as possible when you can. Sometimes it's impossible. <laughs> All right. Is that safe enough for sure. you? <laughs> sure, yeah, totally. Yeah, that is, that is disclosure enough for us. All right. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, Steve, well, why don't you uh, give us our uh, weekly spam mail and then tell us what we're doing next week. All right, spam time. The main show, who had quite a few good probable, must have been an hour's failing, one that had a few the property to prior times to find precisely why Michael was so quite a bit all about her own sibling, therefore preventative to get with them. That had like three endings. I really thought it was going to end three different times. Yep. There was way too many of one part of speech, but I can't figure out what part of speech they were doing too many And who of. was that by? Sock Celine. Celine. I, I think it's a bag sale, people. I love that the French word for bag, I believe, is sack or sock with the little accent. Sock? Yeah. Sock. 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 No, it's not sock. No. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. I think I have the word wrong. You should be ashamed. (laughs) What are we doing next week? It concerns bags. The album that we are doing next week is the most proggiest prog album I have ever progged onto this podcast. I mean, you've progged us quite a bit. I have progged you. I've progged and prodded you, and this time I'm progging and prodding you with Progger. The band is called Progger? The band is is called Progger. And their album is Scattering. It's a lot of, it's, <laughs> if that's not, that doesn't sound busy. It's scattered, scattering prog music called Scattering by Progger. Okay. The biggest selling point, uh, because I realized I was not very specific about what makes this band unique. Um, even the second point is not specific. They're from Austin. Lots of bands are. Lots of great bands, too. But the biggest thing is that saxophones are a pretty big component of this ensemble. Interesting. All right, well. Saxophone prog, and it is quite jazzy. Quite jazzy. Shouldn't they call them progophones? I don't think they're going to change the name of the thing. But then again, you're right, fiddle. Why does, why, when you're doing country, do they call it fiddles? Okay, I'm not. It's the same instrument. You chose them because of the pun. 
<laughs> no, I chose them after a very long deliberation against other prog albums, and, and in I'm fact, sure a pun in fact, was involved. their album yeah, did true. their out al- their their band title did not help in this instance because I saw the word Prager and I was almost going to skip over them because I was like, come on, <laughs> too on the nose. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll, tune in for that next week, and we'll see you then. But for now, remember, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.